Welcome to the Washington Realtors podcast studio. I'm Annie Fitzsimmons, the Washington Realtors legal hotline lawyer. And today's podcast is a discussion regarding the risks of buyers allowing sellers to retain possession of the property after closing. And I am so grateful today to be joined by my friend, Caitlin Jackson. Caitlin, would you introduce yourself and then we'll introduce the problem. Sure. Yeah, my name is Caitlin Jackson. I'm an attorney for Dimension Law Group. I am also on the board of the Rental Housing Association of Washington, and I myself am also a landlord within the state of Washington. And Caitlin, where is your practice? My practice is physically located in Tukwila, Washington, but I practice regularly in Snohomish, King, and Pierce County at this time. And primarily, um, I I practice estate planning and business law along with landlord-tenant law, but given the significant changes that have happened in the past year and a half, have become very, very um, involved in the landlord-tenant law realm. Okay. And I think part of what we're going to talk about today is some of the difficulties created by the layering of some local jurisdiction laws, right? Correct. Nowhere goofier than than Seattle, I suppose, although I think that the goofy creep is, is creep, it, the goofy is creeping, is that right? Yes, we are being, uh, it's a blob, it's spreading <laughs> everywhere, starting in Seattle and just seeping out um, amongst other communities. Taking over the landlord-tenant universe. Okay, so what are we talking about today? I'm going to frame the issue, okay? Sure. The Washington landlord-tenant law was changed in the spring of 2020, 21, mm-hmm. spring of 2021. And Caitlin is going to spend a fair amount of time talking about those changes. What is significant with respect to this video top, I'm sorry, this podcast topic today is that when buyers allow sellers to retain possession of residential property mm-hmm. after closing of the transaction, it creates a, a gigantic problem. That's the problem we're going to be talking about today. It is not the same if the buyer takes early occupancy of the seller's property, right? It's correct completely different situation. Mm-hmm. There's nothing we're going to say today that is applicable to that scenario where a buyer takes possession prior to closing, correct? Correct. Okay, so the, the problem that we're discussing today is solely related to, um, to sellers retaining possession after closing. Mm-hmm. Okay, Caitlin, give us the background that we need to know why in post-springtime 2021, this is even an issue. Okay. Um, The issue here is that in the spring of 2021, the legislature passed two large bills statewide that applied to all of landlord-tenant law, 5160 and 1236, which were both codified recently. Um, That basically means we have statewide just cause. What does just cause mean? That's the question is the... The, the landlord has to have a specific reason pre-approved by the state legislature for terminating any tenancy. Um, okay, wait a second. Mm-hmm. Before you go past that, I just I want to back up really fast because I think there's going to be brokers who are wanting to find the law you're talking about. What you gave were bill numbers, right? Right, right. And when you said that's codified, that means that it's now written into the Landlord-Tenant Act, right? Correct. RCW 59.18... And then is do you know the 
ongoing numbers for the just cause portion? 650. Okay, so RCW 59.18.650 is the just cause provision in the Washington Residential Landlord Tenant Act go right and it's brand new so if you were to take a look by googling rcw 59.18.650 it is a very very long chapter that lists out all the different reasons why a landlord can terminate a tenancy if you are a landlord and and unfortunately if you're a buyer purchasing a property and you've executed that document that allows the seller to stay whether you want to be or not you are essentially a landlord in the state of washington and so you have to have one of those predetermined reasons and timelines associated with them to uh, basically let the lease expire or um, terminate it okay so i'm going to back up one more time let's talk about that document that you said if you if you're a buyer who has that document uh, because i want to make sure everybody understands that we're what we're talking about because every broker who uses the statewide forms has a buyer who has that document Mm -hmm. if the seller retains possession after closing. So buyer brokers, if you want to avoid the risks that Caitlin is going to be describing to you, the only way a buyer broker avoids these risks is if the buyer broker's buyer does not allow seller to retain post-closing possession. Because if your seller retains post-closing possession, the statewide forms say that buyer and seller shall execute Form 65B, or at least some form of a written rental agreement. Once that rent, written rental agreement is executed, which you have no choice but to do, because the Department of Licensing has also said that it will discipline brokers who give the keys to somebody else's property without a written rental agreement in place. So putting that all together, the Department of Licensing will sanction, will discipline brokers who don't have a written rental agreement in place when a non-owner occupant is going to occupy the property. So in this case, if seller's gonna retain possession, buyer, brokers, you must have a written rental agreement where buyer gives seller possessory rights over the property. Once you have that written rental agreement, you now fall into the pit that Caitlin is starting to describe. And so she's mentioned real briefly the just cause provision of the Landlord-Tenant Act, which I have now interrupted you about four times. I'm going to try to let you get through it this time without interrupting you. No, I I think that's exactly the way I'd like to set this up. I think that that form is the, I think, what did you say? It's 65B? 65B. 65B is what I look at as an attorney when somebody comes to me with this issue, which is, okay, you've got a 65B, which makes you a landlord in the state of Washington. And if you give that occupant the right to be there um, as a resident for, even if there's zero rent, it doesn't matter if they've paid rent or if they, ha- um, if you associated any any dollar amount with it. They are a landlord. You cannot terminate that tenancy, their right to occupy that property without having just cause, unless it fits under very very narrow exceptions. Now, some of the narrow exceptions if are if the lease agreement is for six months or more then 60 days prior to its expiration the owner may be able to issue a notice of you know termination that it's for no reason going to terminate but how many buyers are leasing back the property to a seller for six months or more there's probably not very many of them yeah that's not typical right most of the agreements that i see are for two weeks a month you know, maybe six weeks, depending Sometimes on it. Sometimes three days. Sometimes days. And it doesn't matter whether it's 
one hour, you know, one day, if it's any amount of time that they are allowed to be there, now you are subject to just cause and you have to terminate for a predetermined reason and for the timelines associated with it. And those timelines are long. There's not very many reasons for a 20-day notice, which used to be the law before, that if you were in a month-to-month -month agreement with a tenant, you as the landlord could terminate without cause with 20 days notice. That doesn't exist anymore unless you have one circumstance, which is you're already living with the tenant in your single family property. Oh, great. Okay. So <laughs> right. if the buyer and the seller were living there together, yes. then yeah. we could still use a 20 day notice. Right. Which once again, not a typical arrangement of okay. what we're talking about. So today. I'm going to repeat what you just said differently. The, the only way that um, a buyer landlord could force a seller to move at the end of the actual written expiration date on this rental agreement would be if the buyer had time in the rental agreement to deliver 60 day to deliver a 60 day notice that the rental term was actually going to expire on the written expiration date right only if the written expiration date is for six months or more and then only if it's for six months or more. Right. So if we have a four-month lease, you can't get the seller out at the end of that four months if they don't if they don't leave voluntarily. If it is not a lease for six months or more, and this is generally speaking, and it is very specific, so I'm being general, you can't serve that 60-day notice. It is a it is considered only terminable under the other reasons for just cause or by the tenant. Okay. So if we have the ordinary circumstance where seller retains possession for two weeks after closing right right and they don't move mm -hmm. then we're looking at at the buyer having to find one of the just cause bases mm -hmm. for delivering notice for them to vacate right and and the lowest the shortest time period is well you just mentioned a 20-day time period and that's only going to be triggered if the buyer is physically living in the same space as a seller right, right. which doesn't happen Right. So we're looking at a more normal circumstance where let's say, for example, the buyer is, is wanting to, to personally occupy the property. What then, Caitlin? So that is one of the stated reasons in the Just Cause Ordinance for terminating what we'll call a month-to-month -month tenancy. We'll just call it that generally because that's how it's being treated. They have to give 90 days notice in order to terminate that tenancy with the tenant before they can move forward with any sort of legal action to remove them. So that would be af, and that would be, you know, you could build that into your agreement that that 90 day notice is built into the you know document. But once again, a lawyer would need to be involved in that. If if you that's not boilerplate in 65B. No, it's not. And yeah. I think a lawyer would definitely need to look at that because we have the other issue of local ordinances regarding landlord tenant law potentially prohibiting that. Or depending on the type of property it is, if it's a single family property, you can do that. If it's a duplex, if it's a triplex, if it's anything more than a single family property, you cannot issue that notice with 90 days notice, which I mean, essentially owner occupancy would probably indicate that it's likely a single family property, but not always. No, 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 not, not always at all. So wait, okay, so I need to follow up on what you just said. If the buyer has purchased a duplex and is planning on living in one half and renting out the other half, and when they close, the seller is in one half who was supposed to be moving, but the seller hasn't moved. Now, buyer who wants to move in there can't deliver the 90-day notice for buyer occupancy, for I, owner occupancy? I, as this law has just been enacted, I don't think I've seen that play out yet in terms of an argument um, in front of a commissioner or even at the you know court of appeals level. But this, the, the 
the only time that you're allowed or that the landlord is allowed to send a 90-day notice of intent to personally occupy you have to give them the full 90 days and if you want to occupy one half of it fine you could terminate that half but i don't think that there would be a reason for you to terminate both okay but yeah. but but the buyer might be able to to terminate the tenancy on one half of the duplex mm-hmm. and move into that half right okay all right so let's talk about what it means to have a 90-day notice caitlin for those of us who don't practice landlord tenant law mm-hmm. if i'm the buyer slash landlord and I realize two weeks after closing that the seller's not moving, uh, and I go to my lawyer and I have my lawyer draft this 90-day notice, does that mean that at the end of those 90 days the seller is out? No, that means that you are right to pursue the seller in court for what we would call a unlawful detainer and get a writ of restitution issued. That's when your right to, the, to do that ripens, if you will. So you'd have to go through the entire court process first. Washington- okay, so wait, wait, wait. At the end of 90 days, I haven't been through the court process yet, right? No. Okay. At the end of 90 days, I'm just now free to start the court process? Is that what you're saying? Correct. And how long does that court process last? That depends. <laughs> um, so generally speaking, I would say the average court process for these cases is about 60 days. But it definitely depends on the county that the property is located in. And it definitely depends on whether or not the previous owner, the seller, is an indigent, would be considered an indigent tenant. Because Washington now has a right to counsel for all indigent tenants at show cause and at trial in the landlord-tenant realm of of an unlawful detainer. So if the other side has an attorney, has a right to counsel, sometimes that process slows down the case because there's, you know, continuances and a caseload to manage. And um, we aren't aren't sure yet how that's going to pan out because it's brand new. Okay, so Caitlin, I want to focus on something that I I, I say sometimes on the hotline, but I really want to drive it home on, on this video. Because there are brokers who will write to me on the hotline and ask a question, can, you know, what, what can they, they're trying, cutting to the chase, they're trying to help the landlord, mm-hmm. whatever setting the landlord might be in, they're, they're trying to help the landlord draft this notice to the, to the tenant. And typically the brokers tell me the wrong number of days or they tell me they want to draft a 60-day notice or a 30-day notice or something. And more often than not, it's probably going to have to be this 90-day notice that you've just described. But here's what I really want to get at. Are there technical requirements associated with these notice provisions? Yeah, I would not have brokers drafting any of these notices. And there's two really big reasons why. One is that at the city level and the county level, there are many times additional requirements for the landlord to even initiate a notice. An example of that is many cities are now passing requirements that the property be registered as a rental with their rental ordinances before any notice can be drafted or served on a tenant. And so even the act of serving that notice could be a violation of a local ordinance that can expose the, the landlord to additional liability, whether or not it's properly done or not. Okay, <laughs> wait a minute. You just raised the, the L word, liability. We haven't even talked about that yet. So now right. we've got two things to talk about. Mm-hmm. So if there is this extra layer of local ordinance that imposes additional requirements, and, and I don't want to leave yet the state requirements because I think those can be tricky, right? right? Okay, but, but we'll come back to that in a minute. Now we're dealing with an extra layer of local ordinances, and are these local ordinances all across the state or are they mostly King County? 
no, they're all across the state. They're all over yeah, the state, Bellingham. Right? Um, you're looking at um, Snohomish County is probably going to adopt some soon, but definitely Seattle, uh, Tacoma. Um, I think Pierce County in general is passing their own county ordinances. I know King County passed additional ordinances, but the county level ordinances usually only apply to properties that are not part of a technical city. Um, but you have to navigate all of these different layers because all of these layers of governance have control over these agreements. Okay, so you just named some local jurisdictions in the areas where you practice and are familiar. Right. Is it also possible that there's local jurisdiction requirements in Vancouver and Yakima yep. and Walla Walla and Spokane? Oh, yep. and so every broker everywhere in the state needs to recognize that the notice requirements for whatever notice is delivered to terminate a tenancy are, cre are controlled not only by state law, but also by local law if there is a local law controlling the issue. Right. Okay, and here's what else I heard you say a minute ago. If there is a technical error, so we leave out a word, right? And I mean, mm -hmm. it could be that simple because the local law could say this, you have to have this blurb regarding veterans, for example, right? Right, yep. And if the blurb is missing a word, you haven't met that requirement, right? Right. So Washington has made it very clear that landlords, when they are initiating this process, have strict compliance requirements, meaning they have to cross every T and dot every I perfectly, or the case itself, whether you've waited your full 90 days or 120 days, whether you've paid $2,500 or more for legal services to get you before a commissioner, if not every single detail at the federal, state, and local level has not been complied with, that case can get thrown out. And the bigger issue there is that one of the new protections that is under 5918650 or just cause gives the tenant a private right of action against a landlord if they try to serve any of these notices and do anything incorrectly. And okay, what <laughs> that's the liability word. Right, right. <laughs> We're going to get there. Okay. But I don't, I, we can't pass over what you just said. If there is a missing word, mm -hmm. failed I, failed dotted I, failed cross T, in the notice that's given, Caitlin will talk about the liability in a minute, but, but understand that the 90 days that the, that the landlord has now waited after delivery of the notice, that 90 days was all a waste. Mm -hmm. They now have to once again deliver the properly drafted notice, and it has to be properly delivered. Are there delivery requirements? Yes. Okay, so, well, don't, don't go there yet. So it has to be properly drafted, it has to be properly delivered, and if it's not, then the landlord is all the way back to the starting blocks Correct. with delivering their 90-day notice to begin to, be, to put themselves in the place where they can then initiate the litigation process. Correct. Okay. He, that's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. In addition to that problem, if the if the landlord has delivered a faulty notice document, then they can create liability for themselves. Okay, right. what's that about? So the new law basically says that if a landlord initiates a process, uh, you know, without following these rules exactly, let's make it easy. The tenant can come back and sue that landlord for economic damages, non-economic damages, three times the monthly rent, um, and attorney's fees. And that is if, even if the tenant voluntarily vacates the property under the assumption that the landlord did start a process 
correctly. So a hypothetical there would be if I served a 60-day notice of intent to personally occupy, which was allowed under governor one of the governor's moratoria a while ago when those were still going on, and the tenant thought that that notice was valid and then late and vacated, they could come back and sue the landlord for personal liability because the law now says you have 90 day, you had to give 90 days notice for personal occupancy of the property. And so that person could come back and say, oh, well, I was moving out. I slipped and fell. <laughs> And I hurt my back. Okay, wait a minute. We're, we're, we're going to talk about what different damages mean, but I want to ask you a question. Are you aware of any lawyers anywhere in the state who are actually out there harvesting clients based on already concluded eviction actions who can now look back and say, hey, this eviction is already concluded, the, land, the tenant's already moved out, but I'm now reviewing this notice that's filed as part of the court record. It's ineffective, which means that I can now go harvest this tenant as a client and bring a damages claim against the landlord. Is that happening? Right. So leaving aside the rules that uh, that lawyers are required to abide by as a part of the Bar Association, leave that to the side. The short answer to your question is yes. It's happening. Okay, let's talk about, you, you said that, that the tenant has the right to sue the landlord for economic damages and non-economic damages. Right. Give me some examples. What, is, what do those terms mean? Well, an economic damage is money, right? So whatever it costs them to relocate. So if they had to sign a lease with a new landlord for X amount of time, maybe it's a year, um, but the increased rent amount was $900 more a month than what they were paying this current situation, that that's an economic damage. They had to take on more costs. If it cost them movers, right, if they had movers that they had to pay, if they had to pay for storage, um, all of those are monetary um, economic damages. Non-economic damages could include pain and suffering, trauma, uh, any, any sorts of things that you know you could argue is made the process painful for for you as a as a tenant in relocating. Emotionally painful, right. physically um, painful, anything. Right, and in, in a good example of that that I have seen sort of floating around is when a tenant has children in a school district. And they had to move quickly, and so they had to change school districts for the children. Maybe those children's ha children had IEPs that were in place, and they got you know had to get those all restructured and organized, and it traumatized the children. <laughs> that that all of those things would be considered factors by a court when they're assessing non non economic damages. So if the notice form is drafted incorrectly or delivered incorrectly, and tenant moves out based mm -hmm. on that flawed notice the landlord could still be sued after the tenant has vacated for all of those damages. Right, because the law says <clears throat> if, if the landlord, whether it's through the legal process or otherwise, just causes the tenant to, to, remove, to be removed from the property. Cause is a very general term. So it could be, did it really cause them? Um, yeah, if they picked up and left because they were relying upon the, the validity of the notice at the time and it was very painful for them as a, as a family, if they are a family, yeah, that's a cause. Okay, so that's a 90-day notice if the buyer wants to take possession of the property. Right. What if, what if the seller stops paying rent? How much notice does a buyer have to give that tenant? So one of the new laws that were also passed in the spring of this year requires mandatory mediation for any non-payment of rent unlawful detainer. And unlawful detainer is the fancy word for an eviction. Um, the problem with that for a buyer in this situation is 
A, they have a right to reinstate in many cases, meaning if they can get the money together at any point throughout the process and even five days after a court has found that they're in unlawfully detaining the property, if they find the money, they can pay it into the court registry and the landlord is required, even though they've gone through this whole ordeal, to let them back into the property at that point. Okay, let's, let's take this step by step. So it's a four, is it a 14-day pay or vacate? It's a 14-day pay or vacate with mandatory relocate or mandatory mediation paperwork that gives the tenant the contact information and the ability to reach out to the local dispute resolution center to do to engage in a mandatory mediation process the landlord also has to give those documents to the local dispute resolution center to give them the opportunity to reach out to the tenant so that there's mediation that can potentially happen is that state law that is state law so every landlord in Washington State whose tenant is not paying rent can deliver the 14-day pay or vacate, and including the buyers whose, whose tenants are really the seller of the property, that, that seller slash tenant, if they're not paying rent, buyer can deliver the 14-day pay or vacate, but that doesn't really give buyer then the right to, to start the eviction action. There's one more layer. And, okay. and I know I just keep piling on, but that's because this no, keep is going. highly complex. If a tenant in the state of Washington falls behind on rent, the landlord is obligated to offer them a reasonable repayment plan before they can even do any of this process of mediation. But after they file the 14-day or before they file before. the 14-day? So, so the... <laughs> So the tenant who's fallen behind on rent, before the landlord can deliver the 14-day pay or vacate, the landlord first has to give the tenant a reasonable repayment plan. An offer of a reasonable repayment plan, which is also statutorily defined. So, the, so Congress has essentially said, this is, these are the terms you must offer. You must offer, at most, one-third of one month's rent payments at a time, with the first payment due 30 days in advance. No interest, no late fees, no attorney's fees, no requirement that they comply with the, with the lease agreement or continue to pay rent on time moving forward. So you are forced to offer them this repayment plan, and only if they don't respond or don't accept or if they counter with something that is not agreeable to the landlord, then you would be able to move forward with the process of the 14-day and, and the mediation process with that tenant. D does a tenant ever accept and then just not perform, and then that would the landlord would have the ability when they don't perform, but they have to wait for that time to pass? So that's the process that's rolling out right now because the earliest that any landlords could actually force this process started 11 days ago on oh. November 1st after gotcha. the expiration of the moratorium, um, well, at least the most recent moratorium. So we are seeing that you know, roll out. It's unknown whether or not if they, let's say hypothetically speaking, the landlord offers a reasonable repayment plan, it is accepted, payments are missed, whether or not you then have to offer another reasonable repayment plan before you can move forward. It's it's sort of the, the law needs to be reassessed at the next, um, and in spring of 2022, hopefully, because the way it was written, it does imply that you could end up in a loop of payment plans. Okay. All right. Brokers, I need you to wake up for a minute. If you if you happen to have dozed off, and I don't know how you could have, but if you've happened to dozed off, I'm going to ask Caitlin a question that I want every broker to listen to. In light of what you just said about the 14-day pay or vacate, reasonable repayment plan, yada, yada, does any of that impact the fact that oftentimes 
buyers will negotiate with sellers for seller to have rent-free possession of the property post-closing, and buyer brokers write the 65B, and on the rent provision, they'll write zero, zero dollars rent is owing, because seller has agreed that they're going to move out three days after closing, and buyer's not going to charge rent for those three days. Does that impact what you just said? Well, certainly does, because how are you going to serve a 14-day notice to pay rent or vacate if there's no rent? Um, owed. And that is the trickiest situation I have seen come across my desk so far. Because but you've then you're, seen it, right? Because, oh, yeah. Because, because buyer brokers do this all the time. It is, remember buyer brokers, you're held to the standard of care of a lawyer when you draft a, a rental agreement. Caitlin, is that consistent with the standard of care of a lawyer to draft $0 rent owing on a Form 65B? No. Go ahead. Sorry, I cut you off. <laughs> no, it's okay. No, I, I think that one is that it, it opens up the buyer to be in a situation where they cannot even be made whole or at least economically um, advantaged in any way if they have to move forward with any sort of legal or court process. So they're eating the costs 100%. So, so buyer will have to then deliver this 90-day notice if they want to, if they want, let's say they want to occupy the property, right? Right. Right. If they're not planning on occupying the property, I don't know how they're going to get the, the, land, the seller out. That's a different issue. But yeah. let's say they're going to occupy the property. They have to deliver this 90 days notice. If, the, if there's a zero written on the rent space on 65B, how much rent does the buyer get to collect from the seller during those 90 days that are passing? Zero. Zero. Yep. And I also think that the issue that is coming across more and more commonly is that in those situations, cities are putting additional requirements for even if you wanted to impose rent. So you certainly could, hypothetically speaking, raise rent. If rent was $0, you could raise it. The new law says you have to give 60 days notice if you're going to increase any rent amount whatsoever. However, and many, that's state law, right? That's state law. Okay. However, if you're in a city that puts you know, additional requirements on that, for example, in the city of Seattle, 180 days if you're going to raise rent. And and so you have to look at what those ordinances say before you decide to do that. And then on top of that, city ordinances like the city of Seattle, and we're starting to see it bleed down into places like Burien and Tacoma, will say if you raise the rent more than 10% in a 12-month period, you and that, and that tenant leaves, you have to pay them relocation assistance, mandatory relocation assistance. So you could end up in a situation where maybe you raise rent a lot because... Like from zero to $10? Right, from zero to $10. <laughs> or let's say you, you kind of, the buyer in this situation just says, well, I might as well get market rate rent if I'm forced into this relationship. Um, market rate is $2,500 a month as long as I give them 180 days in Seattle or let's say it's another city that doesn't have that 60 days notice, but they but they leave, well, whatever dollar amount you've associated with that could be tied to whatever you have to pay them to relocate. So in Seattle, it's three times the monthly rent. So if you said $3,000 a month, you have to pay that person $9,000 to leave. So you're giving the the seller they're a lot of a big chunk of the money back that you. Oh God. I'm sorry. Is sorry. that if you is that if you violate the time period? No. Even even if you conform to the time period. Right. But you've raised the rent. Mm-hmm. Three thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And the and the seller and the and the landlord leaves. No, the tenant leaves. The tenant, so let's I'm say sorry, the say, tenant leaves. I'm sorry, that's what I meant. The tenant leaves. If the tenant stays and and pays the increased rent, no problem, right? Right. But if the tenant leaves and, and they say, I left because the landlord raised the rent, they now have the right to claim relocation assistance from the landlord 
mm-hmm. at the in the amount of and is this always the formula? It's I always- think it's brand new. This came into place literally. I think it went into place two days ago, uh, two November ninth. November ninth. And this is state law. No, this is Seattle. This so is this Seattle. the whole point here is that your attorney needs to walk you through all these different analyses based on where is your property located, what city is it in, what county is it in, all of these areas of law, all these areas of city, county, state, federal law have to be basically catered to each property when making these decisions or accepting the risks of them, right? You have to accept that risk. And with regard to the city of Seattle, it's not just if the tenant leaves before the new rent comes into place. I think if they live there, even if they live there for four months after, so long as they leave within something like six months after the new rent is imposed, you still owe that relocation assistance. So this is uh, probably an extreme version because we're talking about Seattle, but these things are making their way into other cities. Burien is starting to mirror, mirror these things. Tacoma is starting to mirror these things. And this is all under the context of Many buyers that we're talking about never wanted to be a landlord in the first place. No, they never contemplated it. <laughs> right. Contemplated but, it. but whether they want to be or not, once that Form 65B is signed, they are a landlord. Okay, Caitlin, so take this scenario. Buyer purchases the property. Uh, seller is not affluent. And in fact, the buyer is purchasing the property to flip it. Right. Right. So seller needs the cash at closing to be able to move out. Buyer says, that's fine. You can move out five days, 10 days after closing. Uh, Then I'm going to renovate the property and I'm going to sell it. Right. I'm not going to move into it. I'm going to sell it. Right. State law says 120 days notice. To renovate the property. To to terminate that occupancy or tenancy in order to renovate the prop, substantially rehabilitate the property. And that's just state law. Once again, you got to look at what the local ordinances say. And many local ordinances have actually put into place requirements that depending on the type of property we're talking about, you may even first have to give, like, for example, the city of Seattle, a 90-day notice of your intent to, oh, if you're going to like flip it and sell it, to sell the property. If it's naturally, like, I think it was, I think the term that they were using is like naturally affordable housing. If you're going to flip it <laughs> and sell it, you may first have to op- give the city an offer of first refusal, essentially. That's that's not the exactly. The city, not the tenant, the city. That, right, right. Well, in some cases, cities are passing things where you have to offer it to the tenant too. Okay. Um, now, that is not exactly how these are being applied, and I think the city would fight back on uh, me couching it that way, but essentially that's what's happening. Okay. All right. So that's if I'm going to flip it and sell it. Mm-hmm. What if I am, was not planning on flipping it and selling it? Does, it, does your analysis change any if I'm going to, if I just want to renovate it and re- rent it for more rent? Does that change the 120-day analysis or are we still at the 120-day notice? If you are renovating it in a way that would require somebody to leave. So if you have to pull, pull permits, and it would make it uninhabitable for whatever is going to happen to it in the meantime, meaning they lose their kitchen so they have no kitchen, um, that would be 120 days. What I have seen commonly confused already is they want to sell it as an end goal, 
but they also need to rehabilitate it first. So they give the 90-day notice of intent to sell, but really they had to give the 120 days. They have to give the longer of the two if it was mm. going to need to be rehabilitated first, and that rehabilitation would have required the tenant to leave. Now, that's the door that I see the most commonly opened for a tenant suing later because they should have been given 120 days rather than 90 days, and so they relo- relocated early. Okay, so... Caitlin, is there ever a scenario where a seller who has a right to stay in the property for five days after closing, let's say, Mm -hmm. but doesn't leave, Mm -hmm. and the buyer has to use one of these just cause mechanisms to deliver whatever the amount of notice it is and get the seller out, is there ever a time when the buyer would then have to pay the seller relocation assistance because the seller didn't move when the seller said they would move? Of course. I mean, I haven't seen it yet because these laws haven't been in place long enough to even allow these things to move forward. But, um, well, I mean, I guess it technically could have. Um, but generally, that is what what you're going to end up seeing, which is you have to give one of these notices. It has to be 120 days. If you're if you are giving that reason, it's a it's strict compliance, right? And if your city requires relocation assistance, if you are going to rehabilitate a property and, and move a tenant out of it you have to pay that relocation assistance. It's, it's, that, that's, it's, it's, there's no way around it in many ways. Is relocation assistance ever a state law requirement or is it always a local law requirement? I, you know, I'm gonna say I don't know off the top of my head. I don't think it is a huge concern at the state law level, but definitely at the local levels because the local levels tend to be more strict. Okay, all right, I wanna give you one more example on the same kind of flipper concept. Um, buyer purchases the property they're not planning on doing a bunch of renovations but they need to get the tenant out so they can at least clean it up maybe do some my dad used to refer to it as plc paint landscape and carpet um just make it look a little bit better and then they were going to raise the rent and they let the the landlords i mean sorry they let the seller stay in at you know they've they they are basically aware of this concept so they didn't let them stay in for zero but they let them stay in for you know, $500 a month or something like that. And it's a property that they're really intending to rent for $2,000 a month. Um, but, but they're not going to do a major renovation, and they're going to maintain the property as a rental. Do you foresee a circumstance in that kind of a situation where the, the buyer landlord simply cannot get the seller tenant out? I'm actually going through the list of reasons you could terminate that tenancy, and I can't find one in my head. I mean, that would be it. That's where you're going to get stuck the thing you could do is raise rent but once again you'd have to go back to local ordinances and see what risks you take on when you do that an example of that being seattle if you raise that rent to two thousand to say well okay hey tenant we gave it to you for five hundred dollars a month that's well below market um and we've done the what did you call it plc (laughs) that's right we've done the plc it's worth much more we're going to raise it to market rate well if that person leaves six months later you got to pay them three times the monthly rent if you you know, if they decide that that was more than, or if it was more than 10% raise and and they qualify. Okay. Um, Let's see, there was something else that was on my mind that I wanted to ask you. I would like to jump in and and say solutions. That's what I was going to say. How do we solve this problem? How do we solve this problem? Well, first we need to go, I think that we need to do some more lobbying with our legislators that really works with. That's a different department at Washington Realtors. Okay. All right. But that's one solution. A short-term solution is holdbacks. So when the seller, right? 
Uh, go ahead. I, I might, I might, I might throw the you know the legal good. That's fine. In the that's hat, fine. Hat that's in the fine. Ring, in the ring, but go ahead. I, I could understand why as part of the agreement to let the seller stay, but part of the the, the sales price is actually held back in some sort of trust um, or escrow to confirm that they have actually moved out as agreed. Okay, I can agree. I can go with you on this if you if you tell me if your if if your answer to this question is what I want it to be. Okay. Whose whose trust account is going to hold that holdback? I well escrow, right? Escrows won't hold that holdback. They mm-hmm. they won't hold a chunk of the purchase price back for uh, my next question would be who's going to draft that holdback agreement? You're going to give me the right answer for this question. The attorney. The attorney's going to hold right. Draft and usually the attorney's going to be representing the buyer in this situation. So the buyer's attorney should probably hold that. Can hold back the funds. And so then I would be happy with that solution. So if buyer goes to legal counsel before closing and say, and, and buyer's lawyer says, the one way that this makes sense is if we hold back a big chunk, $100,000 mm-hmm. of the purchase price. Right. In my law firm's trust account, escrow's not going to hold it. Broker, you better not hold it if you have a trust account. Right. Law, sell, buyer's lawyer's going to hold it. The buyer's lawyer's going to draft the holdback agreement. Fine. Right. That's a great solution. Yep. That's the most practical, in my opinion. Okay. That, and I think it's probably the best. It's, not, it's maybe not the most practical because I think that a lot of buyers aren't going to want to go to legal counsel to do that. But if they, but maybe we change that. But maybe we change that. <laughs> right. Maybe we change that. Buyer right. brokers, you should get your buyer to, to legal counsel for that. Right. And and you know what? Maybe still that doesn't really happen because instead the buyer's lawyer talks the buyer out of allowing the seller to stay post closing. Said give right. him cash for keys or something like that. Right? You'd be. You'd but be once again, remember the penalties. So if they're allowed to stay even one day, so you say cash for keys. That isn't this cash for keys in the sense that this person is giving this pers- other person money to give them the property. I'd That's say cash, cash for keys. keys to get out at closing, right? I mean, I'm saying we'll we'll give you an extra five thousand dollars on the purchase price or something like that to get out. No. Oh God! And, and if okay. they and if they can't get out until they've actually had the money in their hands to go and buy something else or rent something else, then that you don't have that solution. Right. But what I don't want to give the impression of is that you allow that seller to stay for even one day or one hour and then give them cash for keys. Okay, I agree with Because you. once again, you are a landlord now, whether you want to be or not. So if you don't give them proper notice, the remedy that the seller has is really steep against that buyer. Okay, so, and you're exactly right. The, the traditional meaning of cash for keys is, is exactly what you... In- is what you interpret that to say, to, to mean when I said that. And I, was, I shouldn't have used that phrase because I had something else in my mind altogether. Because cash for keys is the concept that says, there's somebody occupying my property and I want the keys back to my property. Right. So I'm going to go give them a chunk of cash and they're going to give me the keys. And a year ago, four years ago, that was perfectly lawful. It could have happened. In fact, it happened all the time and it was no big deal, right? right. It worked. Right. It is now unlawful. Right. If you look at RCW 59.18.650, Section 4, if you are a landlord that fits into the definition of landlord, if this is a tenant that fits into the definition of tenant. And Which have, sellers post-closing are. Right. You fit that agreement. You have to use one of these reasons why you're terminating, why you're removing them. You. It specifically states you can't come to some separate agreement uh, outside of that, unless you meet certain circumstances, which we won't need to get into today, but it's not what you're talking about. So you couldn't even draft release language that would release that buyer landlord from liability if they get if the seller agreed to their cash for keys offer. Well, we won't know until an attorney challenges it, but I would say no. I would I would advise my clients against it. I don't think there's a way around it, and I okay. think that was the intention of the legislature was actually to stop 
this agreement from from being um, enforceable against a tenant. Okay. All right. So, Caitlin, what if we had a scenario where seller said, I just absolutely can't leave, and buyer said, I definitely want this house no matter what. What if we drafted Form 65B? Let's say that fair market rental value of this property is $2,000 a month. What if we wrote the um, rental provision to be $6,000 a month? Well, I think you and I are going to agree that there's risk there that it's considered punitive. However, I think given the new laws, the courts may look at that situation differently because the risk is much more... um, uh, unevenly spread to the landlord than it was the tenant prior to or after these new laws being in place, right? Okay. So my so my first reaction is if if it's if the if the market value is two thousand and you as a buyer broker write six thousand dollars as the as the amount of rent, you're held to the standard of care of a lawyer. I think there is a risk that you failed to to um, adhere to your standard of care of a lawyer and that your buyer is guilty of a punitive level of rent. They've engaged in basically a penalty provision for the rent, which means that the whole agreement could be set aside, right? I think so, but I think... So then what you just explained is a potential defense to that, right? Right. So the the -the out-of-the-gate response for seller's lawyer is, that's a punitive amount of rent. The whole agreement gets set aside. Then buyer comes in with a lawyer who asserts a defense that may or may not work. Right. And that's what you're saying. Exactly. And the, okay. the issue there is that the lawyers need to be the ones advising their clients of these risks. So right. if you, the broker, are just writing in numbers, I would do it with the, at the advice of the buyer's counsel before you do that because you would want to address the different risks associated with that. And However... Um, if you wanted to, hypothetically speaking, one way I can think of to sort of work around that is a waiver clause that says, hey, I as the buyer have the right to waive or will waive this rent amount if the following circumstances occur. So if the if the tenant or the seller, previous owner, vacates the property as agreed on the timeline agreed, I agree to waive these assessments. Okay. Or this rent, rent amounts All right. or whatever. So on 65B, you write in what I always teach, and, and you can massage this if you want to. What I always teach is write a dollar value in that rental provision that's on the high side right. of fair market value. So if the fair market value for this property is somewhere between you know, 2000 and 2500 I I say write that rental as long as it's you know, reasonable fair market value, if it's the high side of that, $2,500, write that amount into the rental provision. And then on 65B, there's a blank space at the bottom, the other provision. What language? Relative, um, basically, I mean, I'm not asking you to draft language. Right. For brokers, Essentially, I say buyer agrees to waive this dollar amount, whatever that is at the top in the filled in, if the if the tenant has vacated the property and removed all their personal belongings as agreed by this date and this time. Okay, that's it. So, so it's an so, encouragement, right? Right. So the rent is accruing from the moment that clo- that the transaction is closed, and if seller doesn't move out as agreed, there's buyer has no obligation to waive. Tenant is liable for that rent from the date of closing forward. Right. But if they move out, buyer has agreed that they'll waive the rent. So seller, so seller is essentially renting for free or getting the property for free. Right. But if seller doesn't move out, not only do they owe the rent from the date of closing. But now they also owe that rent 
for the time period that it takes buyer to actually get the seller out of the property. Correct. Yeah, it's. I think I consider it a hedge. All right. I that. <laughs> And I don't, I still, brokers, please don't take away from this that you just spent all this time listening to this podcast to learn that, that you really don't have to send your clients to legal counsel because that would be the wrong conclusion. Right. Because once again, at where the properties are located, what kind of property you're dealing with um, really does matter. And, and, and what we haven't touched on yet is the fact that many cities are requiring that if you rent even a bedroom out of your home, you have to have registered that property as a rental unit in that city's system. They have a rental, you know, a tracking system. And so if you serve any of these notices or engage in any of these processes like leasing the property and you haven't qualified that, you may lose all of your rights to be able to pursue that tenant. So that's not just Seattle? No. Give me an example of Auburn. city. City of Auburn. Auburn has Very a requirement. Strict. So so the landlord who fell accidentally into being a landlord because they were really just the buyer of the property, before they're even allowed to serve the 90-day notice that says, I want to live in my own house, get out of it, before they're even allowed to serve that notice, they have to go down to the city of Auburn online or physically right. and basically get a permit that allows them to be a landlord? Correct. Right. And if they, and if they serve the 90-day notice without knowing that they have to go get that permit, then their 90-day notice is invalid. They could, or, and, and this sort of depends on the cities, because as the cities start adopting these very similar ordinances, you know, they don't like to reinvent the wheel either, the, the council members, so they'll just sort of take what other cities do and, and make it similar to their, their code, is they'll say, well, the court can actually stay the action until they've met these requirements. But we're seeing more and more that they're moving towards the, the stricter version, which is, no, your entire notice is invalid, and you have to start all the way over again. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Is there anything we haven't covered yet? I mean, yes, but we don't. <laughs> we don't want to open the entire can of energy? worms. We're just opening up a little bit of the worms. We don't want to open the whole can. This feels <laughs> we like we could a, be here all day. Gigantic can. Yeah, of worms it, that we've already. But opened. that's what I want to take. You know, our anybody viewing these that's a broker, and like I said, I come from a family of brokers, so I care deeply about how much work goes into being a real estate broker in the state of Washington, and I would hate for anything more than having these cases come across my desk where I have to give my client the heads up that, hey, you know, your broker didn't do this right. Exactly. Right. And that's and that's the context in which you hear about these cases, isn't it? It's exactly right. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no Again, Caitlin Jackson, Dimension Law Group, um, one of very few lawyers in Washington State who are actually competent in today's world to, to practice landlord-tenant law. So thank you. A, for bringing this to my attention, and B, for giving your time to, to help educate our members. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, again, I'm Annie Fitzsimmons. I'm the Washington Realtors Legal Hotline Lawyer. If you have questions on this topic, I will do my best to answer them. I I'll, I'll, won't lose Caitlin's phone number so that I'll be more equipped to answer them for you. Uh, but send an email to me, legalhotline at warealtor.org. Thank you for being a Washington Realtors member. <laughs>